Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Lead Squared is a cutting edge CRM platform for enrollment management. With Lead Squared, you will deliver a seamless student experience, streamline admissions processes, lower costs, and increase retention. Schedule a demo at leadsquared.com. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to head up on the EdUp Experience podcast, where we make education your business. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again. We've done that more than 500 times and will continue to do so to bring you the most innovative, thought-provoking, and most interesting people throughout the world in higher education and the impact that they're having on you and yours every single day. Of course, you know, we're very, very close, very close, so agonizingly close that it's not coming fast enough to release our book, Commencement, the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, where we took our first 100 presidential interviews and we took the themes that are common to talk about what the future of higher ed is going to look like. I hope you buy it. If you don't, um, that's okay. We'll still have you on the podcast, but if you do buy it, I want you to tell me what you think about it, whether you agree or disagree. That's going to be the funnest funnest uh, part of uh, what we have going on here at EdUp. And I'd love to have you on the show to talk about why you disagree with me or why you do agree with me. Um, but the disagreement part will be even more fun than the agreement part. I have um, um, a first time guest and a first time guest co-host. You know how much I love to bring people together from different worlds and find out how much we have in common. I'm going to bring in my guest co-host first. Um, here, here he is, ladies. I'm laughing because I had this whole plan of how I was going to introduce him, and then I changed it last minute. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. He's David Lind. Oh, oh wait, that's the wrong one. David Lind. He's director of international studies at the College of Professional Studies at Syracuse University. David, sorry for that mishap. I was going to do the applause, and I'm like, let me give, it, let me try to mix it up a little bit. Great to be here, Joe. We're, we're so glad to have you, of course. Uh, for anybody that's ever listened to this podcast, you know I am originally from Syracuse, New York. It is where I was born in St. Joe's in, it's in Syracuse, New York. It's where I grew up in a little a city called Liverpool, New York. I shoveled snow uh, for many, many, many years in Syracuse, New York. But, and my mom uh, is still in Baldwinsville, New York, which is obviously a suburb of Syracuse. So um, I'm also a rabbit. And when I say a rabbit, I mean it fan of Syracuse University basketball. David, what do we think about all that? That's wonderful. And um, I got my shovel ready, even though it's 70 degrees today, but that's very Oh, gosh. Though apparently when I left, the weather changed. I will say, and this is just a little side note, um, I'm so much of a fan of Syracuse basketball. It's what my dad, it was our religion, right? My dad would have me in front of the a TV at every game watching Syracuse University basketball. I have a wrapped DVD of the 2003 championship game that I vowed I would never unearth until Syracuse made it back to a championship game. By then, apparently DVDs may not be viable anymore though. So I've waited a really long time. I don't know if I'll ever be able to play it, David, but if you could get to Jim Beheim and please tell him to get to the final as soon as possible, I would really appreciate it. Now I'm one, I feel like I'm one step away from having that conversation. Sounds like you're gonna have to come to the dome and, and do a podcast there. 
David, don't David, don't tease me like that. Don't tease me because I'll make it a reality. Well, let's get let's enough about me, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get our guest in here. He's got a lot to say, and we've got a lot of questions to ask him. Here he is. He's Dr. Joshua Brogain. He's founder and CEO at Wolf University. Joshua, what's going on? Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Joe and David. Well, we're we're uh, you know, one of the things we like to talk about here, Joshua is alternative models, new things going on in higher education. Wolf University seems to be one of those. But level set for our audience, let's assume somebody has not heard of Wolf University. Give us your your explanation of Wolf University. What is it? What do you do? How did it come to be? Tell us the origin story a little bit. Yeah, it's a great point. Maybe it's worth even starting with myself. So I, I used to be an academic. I was on faculty at Oxford, on the philosophy faculty there, as well as the governing congregation. Um, which is the kind of Senate of the university. So oversaw student admissions um, for specific colleges and then new program rollouts for various colleges uh, across the university. And, you know, my, my sense at Oxford was that we could start a new college every week and, and fill them with brilliant people. Um, but, you know, traditional universities do not move that quickly. And so what? ultimately, uh, you know, partnered with a number of colleagues and started a new higher education institution um, which is modeled on, on collegiate university systems. So we're a little bit more like the University of London or the University of California than we are like the University of Oxford. And we are the first global collegiate higher education organization that allows other education organizations to join and become member colleges, at which point they gain the ability to issue degrees within our university system. Um, so it, it's uh, both very traditional in the sense that uh, we are a collegiate university, and those have been around for a thousand years. And it's new insofar as we have colleges on five continents, and we're growing by about one college every month. Amazing. So dig into that for me a little bit before I pass it to David. Um, the the membership model, as you said, right? And so you said um, you said it very succinctly. The first university that allows members to to offer. To dig into that a little bit. What does that mean? How does that look? How does it work? Yeah, so one of my concerns, you know, as a faculty member was that many faculty are, are not highly um, paid, but they're in a room with students who are often going into debt, particularly in the UK, uh, where I was a lecturer and in the United States. And so I, I began thinking about where is all the money going between students at one end of the classroom and the professor at the other end. And one of the big costs there is that the administrative and accreditation processes um, or, or something that are, are meant to protect students and are really important from a quality assurance perspective, but ultimately are paid for by the students. And so um, what would it look like to transform those processes with technology to reduce the overall costs and ultimately, you know, bring down the, the cost of higher education for students? Our mission is to make world-class higher education more accessible uh, and to ensure that the credits are globally transferable. The transferability bit, you know, requires real relationships with governments, a lot of, uh, you know, regulatory oversight, and that's very costly. And so we try and aggregate many of those processes with software and then make them available to our colleges. So we end up owning the relationship with regulators on the one hand, and then our colleges own the relationship with students. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to talk about this, David, I'm going to kick it over to you because I know you've got you're way more prepared than me. Let's just be honest. Yeah. So, so Joshua, when, when thinking about one of the needs that an institution like Wolf is trying to address, um, I think of students that are often constrained in terms of courses that they can enroll in, semesters, times when these courses are, are offered. 
And like at Syracuse University, um, where I work, students have access to the catalog at the State University College of Environmental Science and Forestry. I know Harvard and MIT have a similar kind of cross-enrollment arrangement. So yeah. I guess one question that jumps out when thinking about the advantages of, a, of students who enroll in a Wolf University college is would they have access to courses at all the other member colleges? And is that freedom one of the needs that, that Wolf is trying to satisfy? Yeah, we think about credit mobility both internally between the colleges, which would be like maybe Berkeley and UCLA having a relationship or uh, KCL London and UCL London having a relationship. So those are, are you know, semi-independent bodies themselves, which have their own faculty, have their own students and have their own courses. But ultimately for those institutions, the degree is issued by the university. So we're at the kind of higher education or university level, and then the colleges are the ones which are producing their own courses and managing their own students and faculty. So for us, the credits stack right across the system. And so when we think about internal credit stacking, uh, yes, it's possible you know, very easily for students to have mobility between our colleges. There's another angle of credit mobility, though, which is when students want to transfer to a non-Wolf institution or simply have their degree recognized by a government in another country. And so as we see a lot of students who move between uh, borders, it becomes really important for us to get a lot of registrations um, you know, in different countries to either facilitate immigration or to facilitate degree recognition in those countries. So one thing I also found interesting about the colleges and the Wolf system is that they're they're located all over the world and offer courses in languages other than English. And that could be attractive to bilingual students or students interested in, in putting their foreign language skills to the test. So as a person who runs a, a program that has 100% international students, I'm, I'm wondering if this kind of immersion experience for students is, is a kind of a, a surrogate for people who, who are unable to spend a semester abroad. And is that part of the, the model? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point. Um, you know, most degrees, when we license them as part of the institution, we have to file all the languages that they'll be offered in with our regulatory partners. And we can add more languages to those programs. Um, but ultimately, you have to pick a track, right? And so if you start in, in a course, you can't kind of mix Spanish and English or, or German and English or, or something like that. You'll have a primary language for that course. But for a student who wants to get exposure to a course in another language, if it does form part of a legitimate degree pathway for them, then that is an exciting opportunity that they can jump into. Um, and that does stack natively in our system. I'm having a, a tr I'm not, not in trouble. I always have trouble. Um, talk to me about how the organizational structure, the operational structure looks, right? So you said it kind of at the university level and then you have the colleges. Is there support systems or shared services um yeah. you know talk about that how it works a little bit to pull, pull the covers uh, back a bit yeah so we're effectively structured you know from an operation standpoint at three levels level one we have our colleges which are in multiple countries and teaching in multiple languages and those are our kind of independent constituent member colleges in the same way they would be at oxford or the university of london um, so they have kind of internal governance controls. Uh, they're able to admit their own faculty and students within the bounds of our quality assurance uh, regulation. Then at the next level, we have software, which implements all the rules of, of our quality assurance system. 
And so our software actually tracks the, the learning experiences of students, the approval flows, if you want to create a new degree program or you want to create a new course or you know, adjust uh, the size of a course or things like that. All of those kinds of governance approval flows are, are tracked and handled in our software. Same for registration of students, you know, language competency, ID verifications, background education, all of that gets handled and benchmarked in our, our system. So if you're on some particular approval committee at one of our colleges, the only way you can actually perform the action is if you perform it in our software, and then you know, maybe you need a, a verified PhD to be on that committee. And so only if the PhD is verified in our system would it be possible to, to be a member of that committee. So a lot of the, the kind of quality assurance bounds are handled at the software level. So layer one, you have the colleges. Layer two, you have software that's tracking and managing what's happening in those colleges. And then layer three, we have our, our licensing and regulatory operations. And so that's where you actually have a legal entity that's recognized as a university or recognized as a higher education institution. It's permitted by its regulatory partners to offer various degree programs. Those programs are registered you know, internationally in various databases and have been recognized as, for credit equivalency and things like that. And so the end result is some college somewhere, say in, in India or Nigeria, is doing something in our software which matches a license. And so poof, uh, that college is an accredited member college of Wolf. The degree programs are recognized by multiple governments. And the kind of record of student activity is building in a way that's ready for inspection by the regulator. Uh, fascinating, by the way, the poof was not uh, actual sound effects that I had. That was Joshua uh, with it. But but I do True. like the model. Um, I, I have to ask about vetting. You know, so do you so partners figure this out, right? Your colleges come to you and you go to them. Is it you expanding? Um, I don't know, pathways. Is it the college coming and seeing an opportunity to access more students? Is it both ways? How do you vet your partners and decide who you're going to work with, when, how? Um, because that's an interesting, you know, partnerships. We talk about this all the time. Partnerships are one of the best way forwards for higher education. Partnering on something, doing it together. Um, you can't do it alone these days. How do you decide who, when, and how? Or yeah. what and why? I mean, whatever you want to answer with it there. So, I mean, there are two pieces to it. You know, one piece is who are the best people uh, for us to work with? Where, where can we be really successful? And the other part is what are the kind of standards that they need to be able to meet in order to, to be a member college? So the, the standards are, are not flexible for us. They're defined by regulation and, and you know, they're probably even more strict than you would find uh, in a paper-based system because we really have all the information. It's kind of ready for inspection at all times. So we actually know, you know, whether or not there are 2,250 hours in the master's degree or not based on all of the content. And oh, so yeah. um, it is fairly rigorous. Um, so the partner has to be, you know, willing to, to participate in that, right? So let's say we are working with a, a two-year-long boot camp and they were doing advanced studies in, in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Well, there, there really need to be quite a bit of content there. It would need to actually be at the graduate level, meaning that there's academic peer-reviewed literature being consumed by the students and, and some of those other key benchmarks have to be in place. Sometimes when we start working with an organization, um, they might be a little bit short in an area. So let's say they're, they're an 18 month long program and they need to add a couple of courses to get it up to the master's degree level. The assessment at that point would be, look, this is a strong program. It's not a master's degree. It'd be maybe a postgraduate diploma or, or something like this. If you want it to cross the threshold to be a master's degree, this is the gap you've got to, to cover. 
Um, so there, there's a real kind of onboarding and intake process where we benchmark and measure things to see where we would land in terms of what are the outcomes that a student is going to get once this is processed by our software. Um, and it tends to be that the, the partners who, who want to work with us very often, they're international, they're often growing very quickly. They often have students who are international, so they want the benefits of degree mobility. Um, and they've got to have some kind of appetite for innovation, right? So uh, it will take an actual software engineer to plug into our system. Um, and so they've got to be willing to do things like that. Um, so, David, I'm, I'm monopolizing. Why don't you go? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it's interesting because there's a narrative in, in, in the United States that colleges and universities should be bracing for this enrollment cliff. Um, but the, the bottleneck really globally is, is, is what Wolf is addressing. So does that mean there's growth potential for higher education in the United States? And, and should you know, US institutions have in their recruitment strategy um, partnerships with institutions like, like Wolf University? Yeah, if, if the US institution has an appetite for, for doing something innovative, right? And, and the appetite needs to be more than just at the, the executive leadership level. It can't merely be the vice chancellor or, or president. It has to go down to the faculty senate with people that actually want to adopt something or in an area of the university that's a little bit more experimental and has some freedom. Um, then, then it's a, a really attractive option. You know, the, the demographics are what they are. Um, US higher education student enrollment based on, on kind of domestic demand is going to be relatively flat. Maybe it's growing at 3% on, on a happy narrative. Um, whereas if you're operating in a country where the, the sort of GDP per capita uh, is going up and you have the number of 18 year olds rolling into the system every month is going up, then you just have this huge demand for undergraduate education. The bachelor's degree, for better or worse, is still the most globally recognized certificate for being able to, to be employable. And you know, the, the total demand is just massive outside the United States. I, I think the current figures are something like an additional 25,000 students per day entering the undergraduate and uh, postgraduate space. So the, the overall student population in enrolled universities is roughly growing by, you know, three average sized universities a day. Uh, it's just really? a lot. Um, so, you know, that's not happening primarily in the United States, um, but it is happening elsewhere. The Lead Squared integrated CRM functionality will put your institution at the front end of marketing and enrollment strategy by delivering a streamlined admissions process. Capture student interest, segment your audience, create student engagement workflows, and even integrate with your student information system to create longitudinal key performance metrics you've always wanted. You can do all of this and lower your technology costs. Check out leadsquared.com for more info. Joshua, let me, David, let me just ask one quick follow up. Maybe it's me reading into the way you're structuring your sentences, but you said if a U.S. university wanted to do something innovative, and immediately in my mind went, oh, maybe U.S. universities aren't doing things innovatively, um, as you're suggesting here, because you're saying it's more international schools are interested. By the way, uh, the Global College for Advanced uh, Studies is one of your uh, GCAS. We interviewed yep. their, Crescent Davis, their president, who, who yep. was one of our most popular. It is still today one of our most popular episodes ever talking about cryptocurrency and how they do their model. Um, so there is a lot of innovation out there. Is there 
is there um, discussion, and this doesn't have to be you in particular, that U.S. universities aren't at the front end of innovation, or is that just me? Is that me just reading into that sentence too much? Well, you know, it's a fair point. I think that there there's a lot of variety in the U.S. higher education space, and and many of the top performing universities in the United States are highly innovative in domains of research and creating startups, um, giving students an appetite for innovation, and so on. And it's just a, a really impressive sector in general in the U.S. I, I should acknowledge that most of my career has been at German and British universities, um, so I, I'm less experienced in the U.S. I was briefly a member of Yale and have done research stints at Dartmouth and Duke, um, but you know. Really, when you have a highly democratic institution that's a nonprofit that has a mission to serve students, um, you need to have a lot of stakeholders aligned around something. That takes a lot of work. Uh, at Oxford, you know, it took roughly 1% of the governing congregation to overthrow the vice chancellor on any particular topic. Um, so very hard to get anything done as a vice chancellor at the University of Oxford. Um, you know, for, for a highly democratic community in which the faculty play a very important role, they, they do need to be aligned around a significant change if you're trying to create change. Well said. That was a, a, a politician answer almost. I Well said. It was like giving an answer that was beautifully well done on both sides. I give you credit for that one because it is because there is, right? There is innovation within U.S. universities, but there are a lot of international universities that are doing Really interesting things, especially as they access international markets like India, who's, I mean, they're just exploding um, universities throughout the world. Unless you've built innovation into the kind of DNA of the institution, many of them are conservative by design. I mean, Oxford is is meant to uh, delay any changes in terms of its governance structure, and that served it really well. Um, and and allowed it to maintain very high bar of quality on, on a lot of its programs. Um, for newer uh, organizations that aren't yet embedded into 25 different software systems and a lot of committees and approvals and so on, there it's a little bit easier, right? The switching cost is lower for a newer institution typically to adopt something new. Um, we try and be in as incon- inconspicuous as possible, but we still have to gather all the data uh, from, from our partner colleges in order to demonstrate to regulators exactly the curriculum that students are studying, the approval flows around that curriculum, you know, what students are actually doing when, when they engage with the curriculum and so on, in order to build a, a really strong record that's kind of audit inspectable at all times. Um, but for, for partners that are willing to do that, um, it can be a really exciting opportunity indeed. David. Yeah, so you mentioned the importance of uh, peer-reviewed literature uh, earlier, and uh, I have to ask this question because my wife is a librarian. Uh, as as a new institution, I'm, I'm just wondering how how Wolf um, provides library resources. Do do you depend on the member colleges to to provide those, or, or does Wolf have its own resources? Does it outsource some sort of university library system? Yeah, yeah. You know the the back. So like we can distinguish between books, um, you know, whether they've been printed or not um, exist in in the library system. So I used to do all of my research at the Bodleian Library, which is one of these sort of great old uh, grand library systems in the world. Um, And I knew the book was somewhere in the library, but but finding it would be a real task. And so finding the scanned version on Google Books was often faster and and more effective. 
you know, one of the big resources that we use is core.ac.uk, which has an API that you can plug into a library system. It has over 200 million open access resources, which are basically mandated under European law to be uh, put into this system in the penultimate version before they go to press. And so if you're at a, a university in Europe, uh, you have to give your, your articles in, into the system and make them available um, if it's a, a publicly funded institution. So, you know, having 200 million uh, books and, and articles that have been published in the last 10 years is a big asset. And that's a, a public asset. So we're big fans of many of the open source uh, publishing archives. It certainly allowed us to, to sort of scale the, the library service internally for the colleges that are doing research much more effectively. Wonderful. So can I, can I ask, do, do you currently have any um, uh, US member colleges or, or, or interest? Has there been any expressions of interest in the United States? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we have some colleges which are distributed around the world and which have many members in the United States and sometimes they have students in the United States. Um, we've tended to route those colleges against our European licensing rather than our US licensing. Um, we did also onboard a, a full brick and mortar in the United States at one point in time. It was very early in our journey. It was the, the first time we'd worked with the brick and mortar. Um, and at the time, our, our software was less mature. We had an LMS that we required the faculty to use. Now we just plug in by API and you can use kind of any LMS. Um, and that was a great experience for us, um, a really fantastic partner. I, I think getting faculty trained onto a new system is, is a huge amount of work and, and requires a lot of support and, and really needs to be rolled out in a, in a thoughtful way. And our ultimate conclusion on that was we needed to wait a couple of years or switch to an API model, i.e. allow us to plug into somebody else's LMS rather than force everybody onto ours. And so in the interim, um, we, we um, wound down that partnership and then shifted our way of working with partners from an LMS model to a, a connection model with APIs. You mentioned uh, faculty and I think I was listening to another podcast that you were a guest That's on. That's not allowed here, David. We, we don't listen to other podcasts. Uh, uh, you just made a grave error, my friend. Let me get the button. Right. Okay, go ahead. Um, so um, there's this uh, ability for most professions to to have their own license in practice, right? Doctors, lawyers, et cetera. But to be a faculty member, it seems like to, to practice your profession, you need to be affiliated with some university. Um, yeah. Does Wolf satisfy that, that uh, or does it open up possibilities for faculty to kind of create their own courses and offer them on different member college catalogs? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, and, and certainly it's a topic I'm really passionate about because I think the percentage of faculty in the United States who are adjuncts is very high. And sometimes that's for reasons of flexibility and balancing a profession with, with academic teaching. But sometimes it's just because somebody, you know, the average adjunct works at 2.5 universities and earns something like, I don't know, just above minimum wage, let's say, um, which seems suboptimal, you know, and just to, to push on the pain point a bit more, when I was uh, on the governing congregation of Oxford, uh, part of the question was, well, without changing the size and shape of the university, so composition of faculty and students stays the same, what percentage of the faculty do we want on temporary contracts versus long-term contracts? And, you know, Oxford was at, say, 65, 63% temporary contracts for its faculty. 
which meant that the normal faculty member was somebody on a one-year contract fighting to renew it for the next year for the rest of their career. Um, it, whereas like the mental picture of the normal faculty member is somebody who has a tenure track job and, and um, that's actually really the outlier, right? And so I think you've got to acknowledge that the overall direction of travel there, though, is very clear. Um, the vice chancellor at Oxford wants uh, the percentage of, of temporary contracts within that composition to increase so that the pie is more occupied by, by temporary contracts. Um, and you can see why, right? The, the overhead costs are, are lower and the sort of push to ensure those people are productive and produce outputs that are measurable is very high given that they feel that their job is on the line for it. Um, I, I tend to think that's probably not the best strategy. I think it ultimately damages the, the quality of the relationship between that person and the student because they waste a lot of time applying for jobs and, and you know, trying to maintain their own position. So you know, coming, coming to the solution, um, why couldn't those faculty simply hold courses outside the university environment? Why are they always in this kind of um, you know, uh, disadvantaged position, let's say? And I do think it's the case that you, you have a double license system. You, you need a PhD or master's degree to teach, um, but it's not enough to practice your profession. You need to have the second license afforded to you by the university. And so you're, you're on your own with that, that second license. Um, part of what we do wanna do at Wolf is make it possible for faculty to join, create their own college, create their own curriculum, have it run through our system to make it accredited, and then they gain their own ability to, to offer courses. Um, it's not something we're pushing very hard on right now. Um, we know having partnered with fantastic faculty from Oxford and Harvard and other places that they can create amazing curriculum. They can teach students extremely well, but there are other parts of, of the governance organization that are just very important um, that have to be in place. And we can't supply all of those at our stage uh, of development. And so we're really um, going to wait until we, we push hard on that one. But we do have some colleges that are faculty led and they're sufficiently well organized that they can get their degree programs off the ground and uh, they run very effectively. I think GCAS is an example of that, which is really a faculty led organization. Um, and, you know, at the collegiate level at Oxford, all the Oxford colleges are pretty much led by their faculty. I think I was on the committee of committees at Wolfson College, my, my home college at Oxford, just a lot of faculty members making all the decisions about how to manage the institution. The committee of committees? Like that's a really big committee. It appoints all the other committees. Yeah. Oh, yikes. <laughs> David, David, you want to keep going? Well, well, let me ask one more. Let me ask one more quick one. You talked about speed at the beginning. Uh, you talked about speed. You talked about flexibility, nimbleness, whatever. How do you build Wolf University to ensure that you don't, I don't know, fall into the same trap of, you know, malaise and you know, quicksand that higher ed has found itself in and pandemic helped us get out and then some are going back in. And how do you build it for speed and yeah. innovation? Yeah, so let's say that there's a, a tension. Um, on the one hand, you can't cut any corners. So the quality uh, can't be changed. And on the other hand, you want to move fast. And so both of the, well, fastness is measurable. Right. So if you propose a new degree program at your home university and it takes you three years of slogging through the political system to get it out to students, um, that's a, a measurable outcome. Um, if you propose a new degree in, in the Wolf system and it takes you a week and a half to get to uh, a delivery outcome, that's a measurable change. Right. <sighs> so um, I think the, the big question is, is quality measurable? And what are the measurements you're using on quality to ensure that in that process, you haven't sacrificed 
either the, the kind of quantifiable parts, which is how many peer-reviewed pieces of academic literature, if it's a graduate level course, do you have multiple perspectives that the student needs to navigate? What are the intended learning outcomes? A very long list of things we have to track. Um, and then at the human judgment level beyond quantity, have you created peer review flows within the system where appropriately designated experts without an interest in, in the program itself, you know, sufficiently at an arm's length are able to evaluate that? And so if you capture all the processes that exist in a university from like both a quantifiable perspective and a, a qualitative perspective, can you run those processes effectively without cutting corners? And our answer at Wolf is yes, right? And roughly what we think the outcome of that is ultimately taking the speed of a university and increasing it substantially. We've made a collective decision, uh, both uh, as a society in, in Europe and the United States, but also globally, we're going to take all of our best and brightest uh, students in the world. We're going to put them into uh, these institutions, which are wonderful, but also sometimes run like 19th century bureaucracies. And so that's a kind of bottleneck on, on innovation, potentially, where students are studying programs that are a couple of years behind. And it takes just a lot of work for very smart people to slog through the system in order to launch something innovative. So we want to see the overall speed of, of higher education increase because we think universities are a critical part of our civilization and, and how we achieve progress in society. Beautiful. David. Yeah, so the accreditation uh, infrastructure fascinates me. Um, you know, I have, uh, for instance, uh, a graduate degree from Open University, which is a British university. Yep. It's one of only two universities that's accredited by an accrediting body in the United States. So I'm wondering, is, is Wolf currently kind of partial to the European accreditation system? And how, how easy or how difficult has it been to, to work within the United States accreditation system? Yeah, great question. So we own two higher education institutions in uh, Europe, which we use to provide the accreditation and, and quality assurance standards we also own a higher education institution licensed in the state of Wisconsin, um, which is going through an accreditation process itself. Right now, everybody is a member of one of our, our European institutions. Um, those institutions have been evaluated by members of the National uh, Accreditation Credential Assessment Organization. I can't remember the, the acronym, NACES.org, um, which has members like ECE.org, WES.org, um, FIS, and, and others. So those, you know, like ECE designated us equivalent of U.S. regional accreditation and a master's degree from Wolf would be equivalent to a U.S. master's degree. Um, th that's not a, a surprising outcome. The, the European system is the most comprehensive, rigorous, and sophisticated accreditation system in the world. You know, unlike the United States, which had the DOE effectively marketize the accreditation standards out to the regional and national accreditors, the European system has a very centralized um, you know, set of standards, but then it meant they had to compromise and work through all the member states of the EU and all the members of what became the EHEA. So countries like uh, Turkey and others have, have joined, um, which meant that they end up with a very sophisticated model, right? And it's very facts-based. It's, it's very kind of driven by the quality of the programs and, and the quality of the outcomes of those programs. And so that's a great system to start in. It's the one that I know best because I've spent the majority of my professional career in Europe um, America is a little bit more new for us, but we are going through the U.S. accreditation uh, process uh, with one of the, the entities that we have in the United States. 
Are you finding that process easy? Uh, it, it's very US? familiar terrain, right? Okay. So um, we've we've gone through this multiple times. Uh, we know what kind of the, the hoops are and the rules. And we've also built the most sophisticated accreditation software in the world. And so our ability to track exactly what the curriculum is, what a student's engaging, who's approved of it, what the checks and balances are in that process, who are the the stakeholders with student inputs and faculty inputs and so on, all of that's been been captured in, in software, which puts us in, in a, a strong position if we need to report on anything or if we need to adjust something at the behest of a regulator. So when are you selling the software? <laughs> it sounds like that could be something that is monetizable uh, for you as you go along and talk to these other universities and accreditors, uh, honestly. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a very mission driven organization right and, and so like our goal is to speed up these organizations and reduce the overall cost of some of the the administrative parts um while keep letting them expand right so the goal is not to go in and and sort of uh dismiss half of the administrative faculty the, the goal is hey we've got tens of millions of students that need to enroll in university there aren't enough seats for them in many places what's required from a capacity increase perspective to bring in these students and give them a world-class education, you really need to have systems at scale to handle that. Well, David, I, I'm going to pass it to you for any final questions for Joshua before I give him the final two questions to, I know it sounded like a final, a lot of final questions, the final two questions to close out the episode. I guess I'm curious about, um, <laughs> as an administrator, a higher ed administrator, who contributes to administrative bloat, I'm interested in, in how many administrators actually sustain the model at Wolf University. Um, yeah, it's a fair question. Um, By the way, shout out to all the administrators. Oh, yeah. Myself included, for the record. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess that the, the ratio is substantially lower um, compared to other institutions by, a, by a, an order of magnitude. I told you he's good at answering questions, David. That was well done. All right, Joshua, here we go. We're going to give you the final two questions. Number one, what did we not say about Wolf University today? David's new, so I didn't expect him to ask you all of the good questions. He asked a couple of good ones, let's be honest. Uh, but, you know, it is his first time, so we're going to have to work him up uh, in the future. But what didn't he ask you today that I would have? Um, so to, to anything that you have going on that you want to say, events, other universities that are coming on to partner, anything else you want to say about Wolf University? And secondarily to that, what do you see as the future of higher education? So on the first one, you know, Wolf is just a really exciting mission to be part of. Um, we're building the largest collegiate university system in the world and, and growing in that. We've got a lot to learn as an organization as we grow, but it's, it's a privilege uh, running it with just world-class people um, at the helm. So that's been a, a lot of fun. One of the things I'm personally excited about is a new initiative we have to help our colleges grow. So most of our colleges, you know, benefit from the relationship with us primarily because the, the tools are great and um, it helps them have world-class accreditation. Now we're starting to help them in areas like student recruitment and student financing and some of those schools, um, which is exciting to be able to, to deliver um, across borders, right? And, and so the ability to aggregate all of those services um, really improves efficiencies when you have a lot of services on the back end and then a lot of colleges on the front end. Amazing. Um, the, the sort of second thing that, uh, what's the future of higher education? Um, I think it's going to be around for, uh, you know, a long time. 
Um, I don't think it's going away as quickly as, say, many people in Silicon Valley believe that it's going to go away. Um, I think it's really embedded in the fabric of, of society. It affects tax. It affects regulation, mobility between countries. Um, I don't think that it will survive if it doesn't change. Um, most of the systems in place were probably mid-19th century inventions um, or late 19th century inventions. And so, um, you know, I'd been doing my work at the uh, Humboldt University in Berlin on, on the invention of uh, kind of the modern research university. And I, I think there, there hasn't been enough change since then. Um, and there are real opportunities to digitize processes. And um, in the words of Mark Andreessen, software is eating the world. Um, but it hasn't yet um, overtaken the processes of, of U.S. higher education administration and the regulatory side. And I think that will change. Mm, that's interesting. That's a, uh, I will tell you, I've asked that question many, many, many times. And that is a very uh, unique answer about uh, digitizing some of the process of administrators and of accreditation. I don't think I've had that type of angle before, but it is um, thought provoking. I think that's why we had you on, Joshua, because you're going to make us think uh, as you work to change the model of higher education and with a global context. And that's what's uh, so interesting about what you're doing at Wolf University is that we tend to be ethnocentric. I think at times look at everything from our geography and, and not consider what's going on in, in the global economy, which is going to be really uh, critical. Um, David, thanks for coming on and being my first time guest co-host today out of Syracuse University. How, how did you like it? How did you feel? Did you think you performed well? Tell me your, your take on it. I love the off-the-cuff style of this podcast, and I think it's a great way to actually talk about uh, real issues in higher education. I love what Joshua is doing, and uh, I did a little research, which was part of the process for me, so I hope you uh, have me back on. And I wish Well, I will be honest with you. When you said you listened to other podcasts, I really had a moment to think about it. But <laughs> since you complimented me at the end that you liked the Oedip experience, I am agreeing here live to have you back again. Um, so way to recover there, David. Um, only listen to the Oedip experience. Listen to nothing else. Watch nothing else for the rest of your life. All right. Uh, there he is, ladies and gentlemen, my guest co-host today. He's David Lind. He's Director of International Studies for the College of Professional Studies at Syracuse University. Um, David, we hope you had a great experience. We are going to have you back. And of course, my guest, your guest today, Dr. Joshua Broge. He's founder and CEO of Wolf University. I implore you to check it out. New models and the discussion around new models is what we're all about here at EdUp to give make a higher education or any education in your business. Joshua, did you have a good EdUp experience today? It was fantastic. Joe and David, it's been a real pleasure. Many thanks for having me on. All right. Well, we uh, check out Wolf University and the work that uh, Joshua is doing out there. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed-upped. Lead Squared isn't only an enrollment CRM. It's a technology that will allow you to optimize your entire front-end student lifecycle by providing decision makers with real-time customizable dashboards. Forecasting, measuring, and optimizing for key activities will increase retention and revenue and Lead Squared will lower technology costs simultaneously. Not only can Lead Squared align with existing admissions processes, but the technology will also help you innovate beyond what you thought was possible. The ability to access data on your phone will keep you connected, and when you add in the world-class customer service, Lead Squared transcends being a technology. It's an experience. Check them out at leadsquared.com.